right. Well, if uh, you turn into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we'll begin our study today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll continue where we left off uh, this last week. <clears throat> now, if you remember, I, I told you that this, uh, this Corinthian church is, is quite messed up. They've got a lot of things going wrong for them, that they're doing wrong, and Paul is going to address those things. But we've taken two weeks, the first nine verses, instead to see that Paul has been reminding the believers in Corinth of their spiritual position uh, before God and their spiritual benefits from God. Right, that as in their position, they are they are positioned as saints. You are you are saints. You are looked on as as holy, because they have been sanctified, made holy, set apart by the blood of Jesus. But they also have many spiritual benefits, and and, and so they've gotten everything from God that they need to 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 live uh, the life that God wants them to live. Their calling as saints is secure, it's trustworthy, and ultimately because. Uh, God is faithful, not because we are. So God's faithfulness is going to confirm us to the end, and that's a, a wonderful uh, truth. And the reason is, is because our calling into sainthood was a calling into the fellowship with Christ. And if you look last, last week, we kind of ended with that uh, thought in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, we are called to enjoy something pretty sweet, a sweet unity with Jesus. However, we can't enjoy that unity, that fellowship, that intimacy with, with Christ while being at odds with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, it, is, it is on this note, then, that Paul transitions and he begins to address uh, some of the issues of divisions in the church. Now, a lot of people divide up the, the, the letter to the Corinthians with different problems, and I'm going to look at just three overall big ones, but the divisions in the church is the first one. It's going to cover the first four chapters, and then disorder in the church and difficulties in the church. But divisions in the church. Um, I've titled this Divisions Among the Saints. Um, the truth is, <laughs> the problem of divisions in the church, quarreling, uh, contentions in the church, that's existed for a long time, um, well, since the beginning of the church. Uh, and, and we shouldn't begin this section of, of Scripture and our study today with any hint of self-righteousness or criticism as to how these Corinthian believers acted. The church has um, suffered uh, with the problem of divisions throughout the centuries, even though Paul addresses them early on here uh, to the Corinthians. Now, why is that? Why, why didn't his correction of the Corinthian uh, believers nip this problem in the bud? Well, the answer is very simple. Mankind is sinful, <laughs> and the root of his sin is pride, uh, self-will. We, we seem this from the time that we're born, right? Especially all, all you, you families that have those little ones wandering around in your house know what I'm saying. Jody and I went for a walk this past uh, week. And there was a little family in front of us on the path. And as we were coming up to them, they, they got off the path and were going along the grass. And they were going to head off that way. And their little toddler just kept going on the path. And they turned around and said, oh, come on, come with us. And I could hear that little toddler saying something as we got closer. And as I got closer, here is what the toddler was saying as they looked away from the parents, put their eye on the path and kept going. No, I don't want to. <laughs> that, that's, that's 
amazing that little ones can learn that phrase so quickly, isn't it? I mean, I know those parents didn't sit that child down and say, now repeat after me. No, I don't want to. They, they pick that up really quick, right? That's not what I want to do. What I want to do is stay away from you and go on this path. <laughs> well, that doesn't change, right? That is just human nature. Uh, pride, self-will. We want to do what we want to do. And while we may have the the be, be beneficiaries of God's grace, Paul, Paul said that about the Corinthians, um, and, and all that in, entails. Think about it. Have our sins forgiven. Our sins are removed. Uh, we're a new creation. We enjoy the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We still struggle with the flesh. That's why. So what's the source of our quarreling and conflicts according to Scripture? Well, James Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James tells us they come from your desires, selfish desires, your desires for pleasure. That's where all quarreling comes from. All conflict comes from the fact that you want something over and above what another person wants. We want things our way. We want to be right. We want to be liked. We want to be important. We want, we want, we want. The Corinthian church had many problems, but Paul is addressing the problem of divisions among the saints first. Why is that? Why is that the first thing that he uh, tackles? Well, because the importance of unity in the church. If you remember Jesus' final uh, prayer with his disciples he prayed for a unity. He was walking with the disciples after he left the upper room. He's probably just somewhere outside the, the outskirts of Jerusalem on his way down through the Kidron Valley up to the Garden of Gethsemane when he stops and prays an amazing prayer in John chapter 17 in verse 11. And this is what he prays. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. Jesus is on his way to the garden where he knows his betrayer will be, where he knows he will be arrested and then taken to be tried and crucified. And yet what he is praying for is unity. But not just any unity. Notice that he prays that they may be one as we are one. That they would have the unity that um, is enjoyed and shared in the Trinity, in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that they would have that kind of unity. In fact, later in that same prayer, in verses 21 and 22, he goes on, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. You see, the reason that Jesus is praying for them, he knows what is going to happen on the cross. That um, the, the, the remaining believers there, those, uh, those disciples who become the apostles, will, through the Holy Spirit, uh, come into unity with Jesus Christ. They will actually experience that unity that Jesus experienced was with the Father, and the Father with the the Son and, and Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And right, they will all experience that kind of unity. And that's what he is praying for. And it is a supernatural thing. It's a spiritual thing. 
There are not programs in a church that we can create to give unity, right? We can fellowship till our, our, our faces turn blue. It won't create unity. Unity is a spiritual matter. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all turned, uh, sorry, tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. As long as the believers in the church are are fixing their eyes on Christ, he's saying, they have unity. And they have far more unity than if they turned outward and strove for fellowship to get unity. That's why we don't program unity. We do allow for fellowship Our relationships are important. It's great for us to interact with one another, but the purpose is not the unity. Actually, the purpose is so that we can begin to really invest in one another's lives. That we begin to apply what Paul talks about in Ephesians, about really coming alongside people and bearing their burdens, right? And not deceiving one another. And I mean, this is doing life together, but that's not the unity. The unity comes from the Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. And when the church is unified, then Christian ministry is a joy. It's it's a lovely thing to be part of. But you can feel it the minute you walk into a church, can't you? You can feel that spirit. You can walk into some and go, well, something not quite right here. Thankfully, I don't feel that spirit here at Calvary Chapel in Cardiff. Christian ministry for me uh, is a great joy. But also, your Christian testimony is believable. Right? People aren't going to believe that all that you say about the gospel and what Jesus has done, if you're bickering with one another. I mean, you're not going to buy it for a second. So, when we look at this thing called unity, we have to understand it's a supernatural thing. And when unity is really happening in the church, there's real power. There's real potential. And and you see that in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 47. It says this about that church. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's your church growth strategy right there. Unity. Coming together in one accord. Yeah, they had the fellowship and they came together, but they they were one of one accord. And so Paul is going to begin to address this issue of divisions among the saints. And we're going to read verses 10 through 17. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. And Lord, we recognize that your word is living and powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is a spiritual weapon, a spiritual tool, Lord, that you use, that you wield to uh, investigate our hearts, to convict us, to reveal things to us, to guide us into truth. And Lord, we just pray that you would do that with us today. Oh Lord, it's so important for your church to understand the massive importance of unity, the value of unity. That's what you died for. That's what you prayed for, for your church. And I pray that you would help us to see that today, Lord, and help us to understand what steps we should take then to seek that unity. And I pray that, Lord, that you would just guide us in our discussion, in our thoughts, even as we leave one another today, as we think about these things, Lord, that you would convict, guide us into truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I really just divided this study today into two massive categories, the problems and then solutions. So we'll look at the problems first here. And the first here is doctrinal divisions. There are doctrinal divisions in the church in verse 10. Let's read it again. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So here you, you have Paul now coming to them, and he's given them this beautiful beginning, right? I'm thankful for you. God has just richly blessed you with all these spiritual benefits and blessings. Uh, you, are, you are saints. And he says, now I plead with you. I plead with you. What's this word plead? It's parakaleo. Parakaleo, and it means to exhort or to encourage or to, to come alongside to help. And this is important because the verb root is parakalitas, which is the word used of the helper, the Holy Spirit, the, the comforter in John 14, 16. It's, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to come alongside, to guide us into truth. And Paul is, is sort of taking on that role as a pastor, as the founder of the church. He's coming alongside them, and he's calling the Corinthian believers to unity. To unity. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's important that he begins there, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we have to remember that our behavior reflects upon Christ. It is his church. Uh, yeah, if, if we were acting unbecomingly in this Calvary Chapel in Cardiff, uh, that wouldn't make the name of Calvary Chapel very, very good. Uh, you know, wouldn't make my name look good or any of yours uh, if you were to meet someone on the streets, right? But ultimately, what you should be concerned about is what does it do for the name of Christ? That's what we should be concerned about. And it reflects upon him. And, and Paul is reminding uh, them of this. It's not the name of the church that's at stake. It's the name of Christ. Divisions dishonor his name. And so he says, I plead with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing. That word speak 
is Lego. Yep, like the brick. Lego. <laughs> it just, it means to teach or to affirm or to say. What is Paul talking about here? What should we all be speaking or teaching? What is it that we should all be saying that should be the same? What should be the thing that we're speaking about the same? Well, it is doctrine. Doctrine. It is vastly important that the church be doctrinally unified in matters of gospel. The church, the Bible, God, Christian living. There is nothing more confusing to, to new believers or people seeking um, uh, to, than to hear differing interpretations of what we believe, differing opinions about our faith. Ultimately, if unity is a spiritual thing, then who is our teacher? Is it not the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is your teacher. The Holy Spirit guides you into all truth. And so for a church to all speak the same thing, Paul means they all should have the same teaching spirit. Does that make sense? We should be all be teaching and being taught the same thing by the same spirit. And it should be confirmed in God's word. We shouldn't be teaching things that are outside of God's word because then you have man's opinion, right? You have ideas of man. Those are the things that bring in division. Division of doctrine doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. When you have divisions of doctrine, there's a different spirit there because we should have the same teaching spirit. Um, now, you might be saying in your mind right now, well, just look at the history of the church, right? There have been divisions of doctrine all throughout the church. Uh, and sadly, yes, there have been in the universal church, in the global church, right? That is absolutely true. There have been uh, schisms and divisions all through the centuries. You can just talk to people here in Cardiff and uh, many of them will tell you, well, I used to be at that church, but there was a split. So now this church came from that one and this one. I mean, those things exist. That's absolutely true. But I want to point out one significant thing as we look at this letter to the Corinthians. This is a letter to a local body of believers. Not all the letters are like that, right? The letter to the Hebrews, right? The letter to the Galatians. That's a region of churches, right? Iconium, Lystra, Derby. It's written to a whole region. This is written by the pastor of the church, the founder of the church, to a local body of believers. And within this fellowship, doctrinal unity is a must. They, they, they must be of one accord there. And for the local church to be spiritually healthy, harmonious, uh, effective, you must have doctrinal unity. You must speak the same thing. Um, I mean, David does say that, doesn't he? That's a uh, good and pleasant to dwell together in unity. But unity is something that we, we have. It's, it's already ours through the Spirit. We don't create it. It's, it's given to us because the, the source is the Lord himself, right? In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says this to the Ephesian church, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that he says, you need to keep the Spirit of the unity of the bond of peace. He doesn't see, say you need, to go, you need to go create that unity. You need to go establish that unity. Go find that unity. He says you need to keep it. Listen, church, we don't create it. We have it through the Holy Spirit. We either keep it or harm it. That's what we do. We either keep the unity or we harm it. And Paul is calling that church 
to keep the unity. I'll elaborate in a moment. But if we don't agree doctrinally, then we open up ourselves to uh, divisions. We harm the unity. And the, 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 the easiest way to begin is that just make sure you guys are teaching the Word of God. I mean, if you just start there, you, you got one foot in the right direction. Now, when you begin to get to passages that people don't really agree with, and, that, and then things are starting to be shoved in there and fit in there just to suit a certain person's opinion, well, then you might have trouble. But we begin with just teaching God's word. And if we're a church that is spirit-filled and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us and to teach us, then we should have the same teaching spirit. That's how that should be happening. But if we open up ourselves to uh, doctrinal disunity, divisions come, we harm that unity. And he says, let there be no divisions among you. No divisions among you. That word divisions is schisma. And uh, obviously it sounds like schism. That's where we get the word schism. Schisma is divisions or dissension in the church is what he's worried about here. And you might remember in, in the Gospel of John and Jesus' ministry, many were divided over who this Jesus was, right? Some thought he was this uh, great prophet from the Old Testament. Some thought he might be the Christ. Some thought he was just a nobody or a madman or a demon-filled man. And in John chapter 7, verse 43, we're told, so there was a division among the people because of him. That's the same word, schisma. They were divided about who Jesus was. Listen, church, we got to start there, right? Let's make sure we're not divided about who Jesus is. And you get into a church and they start having differing ideas about who Jesus is, you have something to worry about. Because even today, there are Christians over, uh, Christians so-called Christians, who are divided over who Christ is. Um, those are the most serious uh, divisions that you can have. Divisions over doctrine. Who is Christ? That's why the early church leaders and founders fought so vehemently to uh, establish those things. Who is Jesus? I mean, was he fully God? Was he fully man? Is he God and man? Right? They had to establish the, what is the Bible uh, teaching and you got to make sure that you're, you're, you're teaching the whole council there about who Jesus is. We have so many cults and off-branches today that the people just don't know what to believe in, do, do they? I mean, this is, you can have anybody knocking at your door trying to tell you this person is this and this person is that. And, you know, it's, it just can be a confusing mess, can't it? Listen, here's what I would say. Because I, I, I'm just another person just spoon-feeding whoever's listening, aren't I? You got to take God's Word. You got to read it for yourself. When you read it cover to cover, and even just start in the New Testament, you read it to cover to cover, you're very clearly shown who Jesus is. You do not arrive at the conclusion, I will tell you, reading cover to cover, you do not arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is a created being. You don't, don't arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is Michael the archangel. That is not what you get. That's somebody spoon-feeding you their own doctrine. That's the ideas of man. You must start by reading the, the Gospels for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. Don't even take my word for it. But I'm committed to teaching God's Word, and we need to be sure we're doing that because divisions over doctrine, serious, serious things in the church. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. 
So to that church in Rome, he says, note, note the people that are causing the divisions, right? The ones that are contrary to what you're teaching and, and just avoid them. You don't want to have anything to do with them because they're teaching false truth. We're not to have anything to do with those who cause divisions over doctrine. And when and where scripture is not explicit, there is room for difference of opinion in the meaning. And I will tell you, all those things are really um, um, not important in terms of the scope of things, right? But the fundamental things, we must make sure we're, we're not allowing opinion to get in there. Where the Bible is clear, where it, it is explicit, there is just no room for difference. If you differ with clear doctrine, you differ with God. Just, just know that. You're taking that up with God. You're saying, God, I got a different message. And see how he reacts to that. So this is why today, when you're searching for a church, it's a good idea to, to go to their website, get their statement of faith, find out if they even have one. <laughs> Many of them are pulling those things off now because they just don't want to offend people. And they just want, like, you know, whoever come on in. There's no way I would go to that kind of church. I would want to know, what do they believe about God? What do they believe about the Bible, right? What do they believe about salvation? Those things you have to know. You can get a fairly good idea where a church stands doctrinally before you go there. I've talked to many people who stayed in churches for years um, because they liked the people, uh, they liked certain ministries, that they liked the pastor, um, but they differed over doctrinal beliefs. Hey, listen, the primary reason that you should be at a church is because it teaches sound doctrine. That's the primary reason. And if you're te- getting sound doctrine and you're of the same teaching spirit, the same mind, you have unity. And then all those things come from there. But that's where it starts. You don't go the other way around. It starts with that unity. And that's what Paul says, because you will be perfectly joined together. Why does he want no division? So that you can be perfectly joined together. The word is katertizo. It means made complete or sound. Katertizo. Think about our church, you guys. We could not be more diverse, right? We, we have a plethora of different backgrounds and different cultures even represented in our small body of believers. You have um, different personalities and temperaments and abilities and gifts and uh, well, just like the apostles, right? They were so uh, different, but they were unified in their doctrine and in the application of it in the church. And so they were unified. They experienced unity. They were perfectly joined together. That's the idea. And because we're perfectly joined together, we have the same mind and the same judgment. That's what he says here. Perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It is the doctrine, which is the truth, and the application of it. Right? Perfectly joined in mind and perfectly joined in judgment. To have the same mind is to have the mind of Christ. In fact, if you just peek at the end of chapter 2 of his letter to the Corinthians, he says that. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you have the mind of Christ, you have been unified in doctrine. You have the same mind. And so therefore, you should be able to apply it the same way in the same judgment. Right? So to be united in the beliefs and the standards and attitudes and principles of spiritual living. That doesn't come through coercion. That doesn't come from somebody up here 
you know, pounding the pulpit. It comes through indoctrination by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit allowing truth to penetrate your heart. The Spirit guides us into truth. So having the same mind refers to that internal, okay? Have the same mind. But having the same judgment refers to the external, the application of that truth that you've internally um, agreed with, internally uh, absorbed. Um, Now, that happens individually in each of our personal lives, right? You individually are are getting that same, that mind and applying it to your life. But it also happens corporately. You might wonder, well, how does it happen corporately? corporately? Well, it happens corporately through church leadership. God has very clearly laid out the role of the government of the church and its leaders. He's very specifically said how that should look and what it should look like. He doesn't say anything in the scriptures about the role of the congregation in church government. There's nothing. But there's definitely clear passages that speak about leaders of the churches. It has a lot to say about the role of leadership. Because as the leadership goes, typically, so goes the church. Now, now, true, some divisions have taken place over that very fact, right? That some leaders are going a direction that a lot of people don't want it to go, and so divisions take place. But listen, if it is a spirit-filled church, and they have the same teaching spirit, and the leaders are spirit-filled, then you should have nothing to worry about, right? And how do you know if this, the, the leaders are spirit-filled? Well, you watch their doctrine, right? You watch their conduct. You watch those two things, right? Watch their doctrine, watch their conduct. Do they teach God's Word, and do they live God's word. If those two things are happening, you really have nothing uh, to worry about. But scripture is very clear that there's a place for leaders, and it's clear how the church should look at those leaders. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, it says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So he's calling the, uh, the church to just be at peace, allowing, allowing those men to lead and trusting that the Holy Spirit has done his job and he's chosen the right uh, leaders there and that they are spirit-filled. Uh, but listen, there's a place even for that, isn't there, to just make sure that everyone is on the same uh, same page. We, we allow the church to be involved in, in choosing our leadership, our, our trustees, right? We, we ask you, right, observe their life, uh, observe their, their doctrine, look at their conduct, how, they, how do they live? But also, we have to make sure that as we, um, you know, come, come together, um, even as a local body, we, we have a, a, an extra benefit as a Calvary Chapel of having the fellowship of every cap, other Calvary Chapels, don't we? to make sure that we're lining up there uh, and that, that we're having um, agreement with, with things. And, you know, that's, that's a model that comes from the early church as well. If you go back to Acts chapter 15, I'll just remind you of this. You might remember the, the gospel has been, been preached to uh, the, the Gentiles. And so Gentiles are being saved. Peter has been part of, of that. Paul as well. But in Acts chapter 15, this discussion came up. There's, there's something they're confused about. And it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you have the wonderful gospel of salvation by grace through faith going out. And then you have these guys coming in saying, oh, no, no, hold on. You still have to be circumcised like us Jews. Then you're good enough to belong in God's kingdom. 
Uh, Verse 2 says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So is there a place, is there a healthy place for dissension, dispute, um, conversation about those things? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and this is what they do. They go to really the headquarters, Jerusalem church there. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the pastor there. They convene at this uh, council, and they kind of share the testimony about what they've seen. And, and this is what's amazing. Look, it says in verse 8, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them, talking about those Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts uh, by faith. Now, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, <laughs> right? We all came from the law. We couldn't keep the law. So why are you trying to put the law on those guys, right? We're saved by grace through faith. And they're just talking this thing out. And by the end of it, they write a letter to the other believers to kind of tell uh, them where they landed with this thing. And I want to show you this letter. It's amazing. At the end of chapter 15, beginning of verse 23, this is where they land with it all. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we've heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of the mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit (laughs) and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. I just want to point out two things. Notice that in verse 25. They say that it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. When we came together and we talked this through, we were all on the same page. And so we're sent, we sent Paul and Barnabas out. We sent Silas and Judas out. This is a different Judas, obviously. And they're going to report the same things. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, it seemed good to him too. Did you see that? For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How does that happen? I mean, when you read the account, you don't have anything that's noted that the Holy Spirit sort of showed up. There were more tongues of fire flying around the room. Uh, There was no lightning coming out saying, thus saith the Lord, right? So how did the Holy Spirit speak? You had a group of godly men filled by the Spirit come together and discussing these things. The Spirit guided them to this conclusion. Listen, the Spirit's not going to guide them in the wrong direction. If it's the Holy Spirit, you're guided to truth. And so the Jerusalem council was guided to truth. And when they sent those men out with this letter, this is what it did to those other believers. In verse 30, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. It caused joy. Oh, so good to know. Like I was about to go into the law. You know, I'm interested in this whole thing. But I mean, this guy was telling me I needed to be uh, circumcised. And what do I, what do I do now? We live, we live in a different world today. Um, uh, th- this is hard. You have so many teachers trying to get their opinion 
uh, into your uh, ears. And it's on the internet, right? You, you, you can find just about anyone that you want to agree with or don't agree with. And there are just too many conflicting things uh, out there. You have all kinds of movements that have popping up now, right? Oh, wait, got a new one. We got to go back to, you know, worshiping Jesus with the Hebrew name. And we got to go back to uh, making sure we're doing the Ten Commandments. And we got to make sure we're doing all these things. Well, listen, I, obviously, we want to obey the law. We want to obey God's word. We're, none of us are going, oh, it's okay to go kill people, right? <laughs> right? But there is a pull back into legalism, okay, even in the church, back into the law. It's pulling people out of justification by grace through faith. That's a danger. And that is a hill I will die on. I will not tell people to go earn their way to heaven, that they need to be doing some kind of works to get there. And here's the problem. You have just too many teachers, too much competition out there, right? I think there's a great danger in just surfing the internet and listening to whoever pops up. You need to find yourself in a Bible-believing God-fearing, spirit-filled church and go there and you will be spirit-led and you will have that unity of the spirit, the same teaching spirit that I'm talking about. But that's, that's where it begins. And listen, going back to the idea of the leaders then, you have to trust the Holy Spirit is doing his work through the leaders. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. All right. So obey those who rule over you. Be submissive because why? Well, they've got a pretty important job. They're trying to watch out for your soul. So make their job a little easier is what he's saying uh, here. But the key to having a church that's unified in in doctrine and decision-making is having godly spirit-filled leaders who are themselves united in spirit. And if I could just take a moment to tell you, uh, you definitely have that here. The, the trustees that I get to serve with uh, are, are spirit-filled men. They, they love God. They love his word. They love you. And we have uh, no hints of contentions. Nothing like that when we get together. In fact, it's a joy. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're having to make difficult decisions sometimes and having to struggle through, you know. But, but since we are unified in doctrine, and those decisions come easier. We're able to come to the same uh, place. And we just have to trust that the, the, the Holy Spirit's guiding us in that. And, and, uh, and, and ultimately, we want to do it for His glory, right? And so I just wanted to uh, brag about your, the men that you have chosen to help uh, lead. Um, it is a joy to serve with them. Um, but listen, if we weren't unified in, in do- doctrine, we would have a difficult time making sound judgments. And just, that's just how that works together. Being of the same mind works into being of the same judgment. Um, and, and this is how this kind of flows down into the congregation. And remember, can I just remind you, it goes to the very, very top. Remember, unity begins with the, the unity that, that Jesus prayed for, which is the unity of the Trinity, right? So there, it's a model there. It pours right down into the leadership of the church, into the church. That's the unity we're uh, looking for. And so Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So he says, listen, the guys that are teaching God's word, you can follow them. I mean, observe their conduct, consider those things, but you can follow, uh, follow them. You've got to trust the Holy Spirit to be doing his work 
in, in bringing leaders into the church. It's his church, and we have to trust him, right? And if the leadership of the church isn't united, uh, the people wouldn't be either. It would, it would boil right down into the, the, the church there. So he starts talking about leaders here. And speaking of leaders, the Corinthians had become loyally attached to certain leaders in a way that had become divisive as well. So first you had uh, point one there was the sort of d- division among the saints, which is the doctrinal division. And, and here now you have leadership contentions, doctrinal divisions and leadership contentions. These are the two things going on in the church here. Look at verses 11 and 12. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. All right, so Paul's getting into it here. Paul's learned something about the Corinthian believers. They have begun to sort of make alliances with their favorite teachers. (laughs) Now listen, there's nothing wrong with having a special love and affection for uh, a certain pastor, you know, a certain leader in your life. Maybe they led you to Christ Maybe they were instrumental in uh, your spiritual growth or they had a huge impact on your faith in some way. Um, But the Corinthians were going one step further than that, okay? They began to identify themselves by the name of the person whom they followed, okay? (laughs) I am a Paul follower. I am an Apollos follower. Paul had learned this from somebody else in the church. He calls them Chloe's household, right? They were of Chloe's household. Now, we don't really know who she was, but she was probably a prominent member of the church. Otherwise, Paul, he, he probably wouldn't have mentioned her, right? So that he mentions her, you might feel like, oh man, he mentioned this Chloe, you know, they're after her now. But part of it, I think, if she was a prominent member is to sort of call them to bear. I've heard this from Chloe's household. Chloe and her people have said, this is happening. And so hopefully that would sober people up uh, a bit. We don't know if she wrote to him to tell him about this or if she made a, 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 a visit to Ephesus when Paul was there. But somehow he received the news. She reported that the church began to divide itself into factions according to who they followed. Um, some remained staunch Paul followers. Some were uh, Apollos followers because he was the second pastor, right? Apparently some had even been saved under Peter's ministry. That's Cephas. Um, and the, then, of course, you had the most self-righteous declare themselves to be of Christ, right? Nope, I don't follow anyone. I am of Christ. Uh, perhaps they, like some of the of Christ groups today, find no need for a church and much less for coming under its leadership. Um, there is a real danger there. These groups were vocal about who they were following because they were quarreling. Now, the divisions seem to be over the leaders themselves, okay, not over um, what they were teaching. We don't get any hint that, that Apollos was teaching different doctrine than Paul or different than Cephas or different than, than Jesus himself. But the contention was mostly regarding who they were following, the leaders themselves. So it is not the teaching, the problem lie in the spirit adopted by the Corinthians. It was a spirit of, of pride, which is is carnal. It's, it's of the flesh. And, you know, I want to take you to another example. There's an example of this in the Old Testament. It's in Numbers chapter 16. Okay, so remember this, you know, that, that God, his, it's his church. It's his Holy Spirit that is, is the teacher. He's the one that's, you know, guiding and working through all of these things. 
And, and you have a great example in the Old Testament. God picks two leaders to be over the people, Moses and Aaron, right? From the beginning, they're the ones going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, right? Um, here in, in Numbers 16, you have Korah and Dathan and Abiram who think they have enough of this. And it says this in verse 1, Now Korah, the sons of Esar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You see what's happening here? You got these three leaders and they bring 250 men. They go up against Moses and Aaron. And here's their argument. Well, the Lord's among us. We're all holy. We're all holy. We're all, we're all equal here. So why do we need a leader? Why, why do you need to lead us anymore? You see where we're going? Paul, Paul has just said to the Corinthians the same thing, hasn't he? Right? You're all holy. You're all, you're all saints. Yet, throughout this letter, he is going to continually remind them that he is their spiritual father. He, he is going to remind them he's an apostle. He did at the beginning, right? That he is bringing authority here, that they need to listen to what he's saying. But you have here in Numbers, you have Korah, these guys saying, oh no, we're all holy, so we're all equal. We don't need any, uh, any leader. But listen, God had appointed Moses and Aaron. He had chosen them. And you remember what happens, right? Moses uh, says, listen, we're going to have to pray about this. And we're going to have to put these uh, you know, censers together with, uh, with incense and uh, the Lord will choose. And the Lord basically says, get away from them. I'm going to consume them. I'm going to you know, get, get, get away from their tents. And just to make sure they understood that this was the Lord's decision and not Moses, Moses uh, prays that God would do something uh, different to consume them so that they would know that it was God speaking and not him. In verse 29, if these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. I'm not coming from God. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit... Then you will understand that these men have, notice what it says, rejected the Lord. They haven't rejected Moses, they rejected the Lord. And of course, the story goes on, and the earth does indeed open up and swallow up Korah, and that rebellion is nipped in the bud. Now, I bring that up just to kind of give a little bit of an example here. You don't have that kind of contention here. They're not vying for power, at least not yet. He's going to get into that later. These are the people, right? But they're just as carnally minded. Just to say there's not a degree of carnality. In their mind, they have chosen, well, I am following this leader. He's clearly the better leader. And, and they're, they're going so far as to say, and I'm only going to align myself with him, and I won't have a unity, See, what it's doing is disrupting the unity uh, in the church. Uh, that, and that can happen. It can happen so easily. Do you remember when we used to have uh, the small groups in different nights of the week, right? We would travel to different parts of the city. We did that practically just to make it easier for people to get to Bible studies uh, in their you know, region, right? Cardiff East, Cardiff West, and we made these different things. But at the same time, there was always a little bit of a danger. Sometimes Steve and I talked about it. Like, you could kind of get people like, oh, you know, we're in we're Cardiff West, right? You know, we're, we got the better teacher, or, you know, we got the bigger group, right? Our minds just go there because we're sinful, 
right? We're carnal. We just, we automatically go there. But listen, church, we got to guard against that. We really, really do. We are, we all have the same spirit and we really are desiring to keep the unity. The spirit has created the unity. We either uh, harm it or we keep it. And God has told us to keep it. And the way we do that is this, the spirit produces humility, right? That's, that's how we do it. We've got to remain humble in the spirit. So those are the problems. You've got the, the doctrinal divisions taking place there. He said, you got to be speaking the same thing. All right, now you're not. And then you've got these leadership contentions. You're all saying you're following different people here. Um, and these are, these are problems. So what are the solutions? We'll look at the solutions here. Look at verse 13. The first solution is we need to be maintaining oneness in Christ. Maintaining oneness in Christ. That's the idea of keeping it, right? Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? <laughs> I, I, love it. I love this, right? He's being so sarcastic. It seems like, is Christ divided? Did, did you cut Jesus into pieces and separate him into parties and factions like you're doing right now? Right? Is, is, did he do that? Well, no. The argument centers on the fact that we're one in Christ. That's the idea. His physical body was not divided. And his spiritual body isn't either, right? We didn't divide him up and just like give a bunch of different pieces to different. Nope, we're all one in his body. It's a unity that took place. Romans chapter 12, verses four to five, Paul speaks about it there. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we're, we're one body in Christ, and we're members of one another, right? So we, the, the church is the body of Christ. We say that we're, but then we also are members, we have unity with each other, which is incredible. People that are from entirely different backgrounds and different cultures, right? Incredible. That happens through the Holy Spirit. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, 17 tells us that, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him, right? We have that kind of fellowship with each other because we have the same spirit, so listen, uh, 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 this is going to come out hard, I know, but listen, a Christian church that is divided is a contradiction. There, there's no such thing. The church is being defined here. The church is being described. Christ was not divided. The church cannot be either. We have oneness in Christ. We have been joined to the Lord in one spirit. And if your church is divided then it's a contradiction. It's not really, really a church. The purpose of our unity as believers ultimately is to bring God glory. And you're certainly not doing that if that's happening. But the source of that unity is Jesus Christ himself. It comes from uh, him. And that's what Paul is saying because he was the one that was crucified for you. Not, not Paul, right? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? I mean, how are you, how are you fighting over who's following me? He's like, I didn't die for any of you. I wasn't crucified or you, that's Jesus. He did that. And right now, you're not bringing him glory. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? But we're not baptized in the name of Paul or whatever pastor baptizes you. That's what he's saying there, right? I, I didn't baptize you in the name of Paul either. So where is this coming from? It's coming from your flesh. It's a carnal manifestation. It does not represent the Spirit. It's unity that comes from humility. That's why it comes from Christ. And I want to take you to Philippians chapter 2. And I know it's a very familiar passage, but I just, I need you to see how 
Paul collect, uh, connects this humility with the unity. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So you have this amazing call to be um, to be one, one accord, one one mind, to have the same love, and all of that is 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 comes comes about by not being selfish, all right? Esteeming others better than himself. I know easier said than done, right? <laughs> easier said than done. But that's the call. That's the standard. In fact, he goes on. Let me tell you the kind of humility I'm looking for. Verse six, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." That whole passage is about having that kind of humility, and through it comes unity. And the supreme example for that is Jesus Christ, God. God, who chose to become man and die as a man, die a terrible death on the cross. But ultimately, it leads to his glory. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And if, if we are not fighting for that uh, unity... We're not trying to maintain that as we've been called to. We're not bowing the knee to Jesus. We're not seeking his praise. We're not doing that. All this is for him. We quarrel and we bicker. We reflect poorly upon the Lord and weaken and discredit his church for which he died. Now listen, there's no church that is free from that because every single church is full of sinful people, right? But what we should be doing is not excusing it. What we should be doing is addressing it. I, I, I will tell you, I, I don't, I don't want to see that stuff main, maintained in the church. I, I will always address it, right? You, you got to get over those things. You got to be right with one another. Uh, put whatever, whatever happened 15 years ago, right? However that person uh, offended you, right? Whatever. It means nothing. What matters now is, is God's glory, Right? Is the, is the church unified in that? But if you're maintaining and harboring something there, you're just not. Maintaining oneness in Christ, that has to be our ultimate goal. And that is what Paul is calling them to do here in, in this passage. The second thing is, um, the other solution is preaching the cross of Christ. 
the more we preach the cross of Christ, the more we're reminded that uh, what church is really about. It's not just a country club. It's not just a, a place that we know people and we come in fellowship and like we're brought into that through the cross of Christ. But look at verses 14 through 17. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We'll get to that in a second. Let's just look at those first two verses because he mentions a couple of converts there, um, personally baptized by uh, Paul, Crispus and Gaius. And if you remember in week one, I told you who Crispus was. Uh, he's the ruler of the synagogue that Paul led to uh, Christ in Corinth when he came there in Acts chapter 18. You, you find him in verse 8 there. But, but he comes in and he finds Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, then he goes into the synagogue and Crispus becomes a, a believer. It leads him to Christ. Well, here we find out that he baptized him. Then you have the other guy, Gaius. Gaius, at least on my page, is mentioned on the same page because he's mentioned at the end of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 23. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Gaius uh, was, Paul was staying with Gaius when he wrote that uh, letter to the Romans because he wrote Romans from Corinth. So Gaius was another Corinthian convert. So you had Crispus and Gaius, both of those men converted by Paul, and he baptized both of those men. Now, why is he mentioning them? Well, he's mentioning them, right? First of all, to say, well, okay, I didn't baptize a whole lot of people, right? Just a couple, right? Um, and, and, and now listen, that doesn't mean they're the only ones that were baptized in Corinth. There were probably others that were, but Paul and, uh, sorry, Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Corinth, and no doubt they baptized others as well. Paul is just simply saying, I personally only baptized these two thing, two men, and I'm thankful that I didn't baptize more. Now, why is he thankful that he only baptized a couple of men in Corinth? I mean, wouldn't you be like, ho, ho, right? I baptized 400 men. That's precisely why. Jesus never baptized anyone. You think about that? He, he, he was baptized himself, but he never baptized anyone. It's probably a good thing. Because if you were one of the people that was baptized by Jesus Christ himself, what, what would you be doing, right? You'd be walking around like, Oh, who were you baptized by? Oh, him. Well, I was baptized by the Lord Jesus himself, right? You, you would to, we would totally do that. Like, oh, that's nice, right? I remember I was in Israel Israel once, and anytime you go to Israel, you got to go to the Jordan River, right? And there's always somebody in your group that uh, has never been baptized. they got to be baptized in the Jordan River, like as if that's more spiritual or magical in some uh, some way. But you can bet the testimonies after that, like, oh, yeah, where are you baptized? Oh, I was baptized, you know, in a pool in the backyard. Oh, it's nice. Where were you? Oh, the Jordan River. You know, like you just, it's, it's this little chip thing, right? We just do, we just do that as if it was this, this, such a great achievement. Paul is saying, I'm so thankful I didn't baptize a whole lot of people because then, man, I would really be in trouble of being accused. Oh, you baptize in your own name, do you? Hmm. You're trying to get a whole bunch of followers, do you? No. In fact, the opposite. I, I don't want to baptize in my own name. I never did. Only in fact, only, only baptized two. And then he says in verse 16, oh, well, yes, I remember another one. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, I think it's funny that he even wrote that, right? He's probably right. Oh, I just baptized those two guys. And then, um, you know, maybe someone's like, oh, did you baptize? Them? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I don't want to erase that. Well, I'll just add this. Oh, yeah, you know what? I do remember now. I baptized Stephanus in his household as well. <laughs> Listen, I, I want to address something really briefly here. Some people 
like to use this, this argument uh, against verse 16 um, to argue against the doctrine of inspiration. They, they look at what Paul has done here, where he says, oh, I didn't baptize anyone else, but oh no, I baptized Stephanus. Uh, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. They say, oh, look, see, uh, inspiration of scripture isn't a real thing. What do I mean by inspiration of scripture? I mean 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Given by inspiration of God means God breathed, right? That's the idea, that the words of the Bible are really breathed out by God. They're his exact words, but they're written down by men. In 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's inspiration. It's God-breathed words given to man to write down as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul can't recall something. In fact, he even like backtracked and said, oh, I do remember another guy. Oh, but then I don't remember any beyond that. So people use this, strangely enough, to argue against inspiration of Scripture. Oh, that couldn't be it because John 14, 26, if you remember the, the Holy Spirit, he's going to guide you into all things, remind you of everything I taught you. Yes, he will. The Spirit will do that. Everything he taught you. This is not a teaching thing. This is a history thing, right? This is coming from Paul's own life. This is not doctrine we're talking about. So it misses the whole point of inspiration, right? We're talking about doctrine. The writers were not infallible. When we talk about the, the, the writers of the Bible, they weren't perfect men. They also weren't omniscient, right? You can't blame Paul because he couldn't recall every human being he had baptized. That's not what inspiration talks about. Inspiration is the Spirit of God using what he will in the experience of the writer for the purpose of communicating truth. That's what inspiration is. And Paul is not sharing doctrine here. This is a historical matter. It's a memory thing. And his point, his point is clear. What's the point? Well, you go to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What's his point? Paul's point rests upon this fact. Well, Christ didn't send me to baptize anyway. I mean, it's great that I was able to baptize some guys, but that's not why I came. He sent me to preach. He sent me to preach uh, the gospel. That's why I came. In fact, if you, you remember Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, he's re recounting what Jesus had uh, told him on his conversion. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Nowhere does it say that, oh, and be sure you baptize a whole bunch of people. No, he is there to preach the gospel. And what does the gospel do? It turns people from darkness to light. It, it turns them over from the power of Satan to the power of God. It gives them forgiveness of sins. They become um, inheritance. They get an inheritance uh, from God. I mean, this is an amazing, this is the mission you're going to get, Paul. And Paul's saying, listen, to baptize this is no big deal, right? I, I wasn't here to do that. I was here to preach the gospel, to remain obedient to the mission of Christ, which was to preach the gospel, not to see how many people he could baptize and get to follow him. I think we do run a danger in the world today. I, I do think there are men in the pulpit who are more interested in getting how many people they can follow him, right? right? Particularly with the uh, technology, you can get a lot of people to follow you if you put more 
uh, things out there. But but Paul says, listen, I'm just I'm just here to preach the gospel. That's all he's called me to do. So I I, I never I was never crucified for you. I didn't baptize any any of you in my uh, name. I only baptized a few people. I'm here uh, to preach the gospel. And he says, not with wisdom of words. He wasn't relying upon natural ability and eloquence. He was relying upon spiritual power. Why? Well, if he were to rely on natural ability, it would empty the cross of its power. This is what he says, right? Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect or made useless or void or deprived of power is that word. Listen, I came to preach the gospel, but not with wisdom of words. And he'll talk about that more in chapter two, not with a bunch of eloquent words, because what that does is it empties the cross of its its power. It takes the effect uh, away. He's making a distinction here. Natural ability must not display spiritual power. Uh, it is true. You can have natural ability, and uh, that ability can be sanctified by the Spirit's power, and we'll deal with that more in chapter 12. Uh, but it can't displace it. You, you, you can't just have natural ability. There has got to be spiritual power there. There's got to be the spirit behind it. It goes all the way back to the beginning, right? The, the teaching spirit there. The preaching of the cross of Christ is where true transforming power lies. Eloquence, natural ability, you know, that may win a person's mind, but it will, it will not transform a person's heart. The power is in the word, and that's what Paul was committed to. And next week, we're going to look more in depth at that power of the cross. But today, we experience the power of unity given us by the cross of Christ. Only one was crucified for us to bring us that unity. And I want to close with just reading you to uh, some, some words from a hymn called Light and Love. O Lord, what hast thou wrought? How full of power thy name. Subdue in us each differing thought and light up love's pure flame. One judgment and one mind we seek in all our ways. One heart to God's own truth inclined. One mouth to speak his praise. Let me pray. God in heaven, we do uh, pray that prayer today, Lord, that we would be of one mind and one judgment, that we would have one desire, one heart, one mouth to speak of your praise, Lord. That is the unity that you're looking for in your church, Lord. And I thank you that we have that unity through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, what a sobering thought to think that we can either harm it or keep it. That we can damage the unity, that precious gift that we've been given. We can damage it because of our own selfish pride, our own interests, Lord. Oh, help us to just be humble. Help us to follow the humble example of of Christ. Lord, simplify our lives that we might just focus on the beauty of the cross of Christ the beauty of the unity that we experience that has come to us through the cross of Christ. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you protect us. You protect the church. There are, there are wolves out there that seek to come in and seek to divide and seek to disrupt even Satan and his ministers masquerade at, as angels of light today. Many seek to lead people down a wrong path of truth. But Lord, uh, we, we simply just can trust in your Holy Spirit's guiding um, power into truth. Lord, help us to do that. 
I pray if there's anyone today that's been struggling with truth and really trying to ascertain uh, what that is, I pray that you would just uh, speak to their hearts clearly today. There's many people vying for their attention, many many that want to uh, insert their own thoughts and doctrine into their minds. But Lord, may your spirit teach your truth to those people today. Lord, you, you desire to save. You've left the church here on this planet so that we can proclaim the truth of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith. What a glorious message that is. And Lord, I pray that we would be passionate, passionate about your church. We would love the fellowship that we enjoy and the relationships that are therein. But Lord, we'd be mostly passionate about sticking close to the truth of your word, that we would have doctrinal unity and spiritual unity in our church. We love you. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.